All right, Jack, we have so many good things happening right now. It can be challenging to keep accurate inventory at any given time during the week here. But um, given that we have so many good things going, what do you want to touch on today? Oh, you know I want to touch on the most interesting thing we have going on at this very moment in time. And for people who come to this podcast later and hear this, guess what? It's still the most interesting thing we have to talk about at this point. So uh, today uh, we're going to be announcing the first ever, although it will be annual, SLED Cybersecurity Priorities Report. Uh, and what this is, is a way in which we as folks at New Harbor and our partners have been hearing really for years from people who serve us in state and local government and higher education uh, and about the challenges that they have. And, you know, when you and I went through this with folks as we started thinking about the development of the Compass platform at New Harbor, we found there was a lot of smart people who really, you know, hadn't been hurt, right? And, and we do so much work in the space. We realized that the challenges they have are a little bit different. So the Cybersecurity Priorities Report, uh, the CPR, uh, is coming out and it's pretty long, uh, but it's meant to provide some guidance and some support and maybe even some inspiration for some cybersecurity leaders out there in SLED. And I was thinking maybe today, you and I could talk about it a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of conclusions we reach. Uh, you're in it, you know, and maybe we can talk a little bit about what it is so our audience, you know, be get a little bit of a primer uh, before they see it. Yeah, I, I love it. It makes a ton of sense. It feels good to me that we're able to put this together in a way that I feel like is is really helpful for folks. I see a lot of publications that are released by certain vendors, product manufacturers, what, like whatever the case may be. But um, they're always like looking back. It's always kind of like a historical look back. In some cases, like it's it's not always helpful, you know, it's especially like going into planning and trying to be more productive and from an industry standpoint and solve more industry challenges, like going forward, just the tail of the tape, like looking backwards isn't isn't helpful. So I feel like this report to me, like really captured that. And I, I feel like there's some some good stuff in there that get people looking forward about how they can be better or improve going forward into the future. And I, I think those are those are the pieces that I, I feel most most good about. Awesome. Yeah. And, and I think that one of the other reasons to find that the audience will find it a little bit different is that as we put it together, it's not a sales piece, right? To your point about a lot of other vendors, it's a retrospective. They're telling you what happened over the course of the last whatever. There's not a forward-looking stuff. And it tends to be relatively narrow. You know, we partnered with folks at Zscaler and Splunk and Veracode and some clients, and it's a completely agnostic document. There's nothing in here that says, hey, if you want to do this, you want to buy this stuff. And it doesn't even say you want to come work with New Harbor. Right. All it says is that this is what we're learning. And, you know, this, uh, and I think one of the conclusions we come to at the end, you know, that, that you actually came up with is that unexpectedly, I think that there is a load that private industry can learn from these folks in state and local, right? Where historically it's viewed sort of as a slower marketplace or less able to be innovative. But I think what we found is because of the juice that a lot of these leaders have in the sled market, they're actually making progress faster, right? And they're doing things which would be hard to do in the private sector, which is actually on a sort of per customer basis, so much smaller, even the largest private sector companies than the challenges that these sled organizations face every day. So I think it's pretty interesting. And sort of with that said, I'm gonna jump right into the very first one, if that's good with you, because it relates to something we heard first on from some of our clients really in the midst of the plague, right? As they were having to deal with workers 
whether we're talking about on college campuses or in state and local government, that were not coming to work, right? It was just the nature of the world during the pandemic, right? The plague told everybody to stay home, but they also told all their clients to stay home, right? And so state and local uh, government, particularly critical, critical services, they were forced to figure out how do we keep our workers engaged and helping? How do we create services that handle the needs of our constituents? And how do we do all this in a way that stays secure? And it was really, really interesting because as we started having those conversations back in you know, 2021 and before, there was a lot of work around what does it mean to go remote? And so one of the first conclusions that we were able to draw based on all the analytics we did and looking forward into 2023 and beyond was that the reality of a really highly functional remote environment that stays secure was critical, right? That capacity to make secure, not just easy stuff, like, hey, I'm going to go sign in for my computer, but the services that get offered, the environments they live in, the way that they collaborate uh, ended up being really, really different as a result of the fact that the pandemic hit and that the expectations of the constituencies really changed. Yeah, it's, it's really an interesting thing. I want to kind of put an exclamation point on, you know, one of the things you said is um, there's services at the state and local level that are required by law to be available to their constituents, mm -hmm. right? So, well, I think in some cases in the private sector where, well, there's a sense of urgency to figure some of these things out about like continuity of services, like the world shuts down, we have to reimagine how we like do our business. That's super important, but the timing's not as absolute where we're saying like, yeah, like we definitely need to figure this out to get business back online, but there's no law that requires that we do so, which is not the case for some of these state and local governments to say like, by law, like you actually have to have these things up and operational and available to the taxpayers, you know, either the state or the local region. And to say those things aren't available or can't be available or can't be supported, it like creates a whole nother set of issues. And looking back on it, it's kind of interesting how some of these organizations, institutions were able to, to solve this in the public sector and in ways like, I'm not sure their private sector counterparts were totally set up to be able to do equal parts based on the timeline presented. Hmm. Yeah, in talking with a variety of different folks uh, in the CPR, we actually got a little bit of time with uh, Ian Milligan-Pate from Zscaler, right? And he was talking about how people came in with those concerns, how do they deliver it? And what they found out was not only were they finding new ways to deliver the required services, but there were actually savings involved in it, right? So, he, you know, he talks through sort of like the way in which that enforced transformation to cloud-based services, not only allowed them to do exactly what you just described, but as they began to do it, they found out that there were other benefits. And as we sort of talked more with them and as we talked with a few of our own clients, the other thing that popped up right away was this thing led them really neatly into zero trust. And I know I can't say that, so now I owe, I owe the gang a shot for touching a, a, a word <laughs> that exists within the pit of despair. However, you know, we do know that the president's you know, plans and the plans for going on inside the federal government are all dictating uh, a higher level of focus on, on that, that style of architecture. And this enablement of the services you described really drove people into something that did have a lot more focus on the individual and the identity and less on the region and the network. And so we found that that platform for the thing that is now called Zero Trust became a natural offshoot of the work they did during the pandemic. And now it becomes a way in which they're better positioned 
but doing things like taking advantage of federal funding, what have you, that exists. So that's two. <laughs> Watching him tally the number of times I say these words. I, yeah, this is this exactly what I did. Jack's penalty box plus two. <laughs> Excellent. So that was only conclusion number one, right? And I want to make sure we leave some suspense, you know, so our listeners do get a, a motivation to actually read the CPR. So I'm going to bounce to the second one, right? Which was what I thought was really interesting. And you talk about this all the time, right? This is that level of collaboration that exists between organizations in SLED. It's so unique as compared to private sector organizations, right? One of the early things we found was that these teams of folks, and, you know, as is represented as an example uh, by Sean Hughes, the assistant secretary in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, we'll talk about in a bit, these leaders are actually willing to share what they do. And it's not like private sector where they never want to talk, right? Because everything's competitive. You know, in this sector, we see a real growth in the amount of collaboration that these organizations are looking to do to improve sort of the water level in general across SLED. It's kind of a fascinating thing, right? It's saying, generally speaking, we're all kind of following a similar discipline and we all have similar goals. But the industry type for state and local and higher ed, like really supports that higher level of collaboration. It's interesting and it, it's fun in the sense where you're able to talk about ideas a little bit more progressively and um, you're able to try it on different organizations a, a little bit easier. And like you said, there's no competition between organizations. Like everybody's just trying to figure it out the best way they can for their constituents and their stakeholders. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, the great equalizer is that when it comes to addressing issues within SLED, they're all public. There's no hiding behind it because you've got thousands of students or you've got thousands of like citizens consuming your services. And they're like, they're all constantly testing and constantly evaluating. And like the moment there's like, there's a misconfiguration or misalignment or there's a problem, like media like hops right on it and like makes big stories out of it, which is never comfortable <laughs> to have to deal with. But I think the encouragement and collaboration across peers really fosters an, an open dialogue because like everybody knows like the outcome if you don't collaborate or the outcome of trying to be smarter in private than everybody else and you know keeping everything to yourself could end up putting you in a spot where you don't want to be which is in the news so everybody's kind of incented in a way to really share and be kind of forward thinking and yeah you're right like you certainly don't see that elsewhere yeah and, and i think that driving some of that sharing that, that, that you're talking about, we actually have new money coming into the marketplace, right? There's the state and local cybersecurity grant program, right? That just came out, which is a billion dollars over four years, but it forces collaboration because the states are responsible for creating the plans as administrative authorities and the local governments are responsible for actually using it. And 80% of the cash goes to benefiting the state and local I mean, it's the local and territorial and the 20% goes to the state. So they actually have to work together and have to do that kind of sharing. Yeah, it's completely spaced on that one. Yeah, that's true. It kind of um, c collaboration is really like embedded. It's like it's it's in the fabric of how they operate. And actually, we touched on it uh, in the section we did with you around cruise. There's also a sort of a more granular kind of sharing that's unique and pretty awesome uh, in this in this community. We talked uh, with Frank Myers from Splunk about the combination of individual kinds of inputs through observability so you can make more sense of things. And then when you get into the discussion of the cyber resiliency early warning system, right, and we start talking about cruise, 
that's a style of sharing as well. So I think that this collaboration topic is a really, really big deal. And I think that whether we're talking about the way that a state can help to federate security management for municipalities, or we're talking the way that colleges can share resources and share ideas and sort of centralize security management across multiple campuses. There's just a lot of different ways in which collaboration is working out in the public sector. And as, as more leaders read the CPR, perhaps, or as they talk to the peers and they learn more about it, I think we're only going to see more of it going forward, you know, to the benefit of everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope when people read this, you know, they we, we get exactly that that outcome and that, that side effect is some. You know, essentially, what you're talking to me thinking about just all, all the people that that would be reading this is they're all really calibrated as public servants. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that when you look at this, that through that lens of being a public servant, it changes what what you do with the information, right? And it's um, really trying to help as many as many folks as you can, many organizations as you can. Yeah, and, and you know, we've got a great example in the next section of somebody's doing exactly that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Sean Hughes from the Commonwealth of Mass, right? And that that was an interesting conclusion, right? The, the What we found was that a lot of, particularly state governments, were wrestling with the challenges of how little visibility most people have into the security of the applications they're running. Um, and we had had you know, a number of conversations. Uh, the Commonwealth has a great program in general. And we talked about, you know, how do you, how do you get your arms around this? And uh, what we end up talking about is the center of excellence that they're creating in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts with multiple partners, right? How do they figure out the very best way to start eliminating some of the problems before they turn into incidents on site? And we know that application security has been very, very difficult to get your arms around, you know, for decades. And I think one of the interesting comments that Sean makes relatively early on in the piece um, is the idea that it starts with sort of setting the expectations with the vendors, right? And I mean, both the external people building software, but also internal teams building it. And, you know, creating language inside, you know, what we talk about is the R4 process, right? Request for proposal, request for quote, request for information. And from the very first communications, letting the respondents know, hey, cybersecurity is something we care about, right? And we want you to respond knowing that that's going to be part of it. And so for me, this section, you know, the application security conclusions and proposals for strategies going forward is super critical. And it's one of the media sections, you know, we have in the report, uh, because not only do we have insights into what will help sort of technically and operationally make it better, but we've actually got a leader who's doing it, right, that people can talk to and learn from. Yeah, it's interesting. I got to, um, I, I really got to hand it to Sean. It's, um, this is such a massive, massive issue, <laughs> like this topic area. And to see over the years how many organizations have struggled with it, with application security and and kind of holding their their vendors accountable, you know, to kind of see Sean look at it differently and kind of be open to doing things differently and t- taking a different approach for the purpose of trying to achieve a better outcome for the state is um it's pretty awesome. You know, like it gives it gives me a lot of hope for these these organizations going forward when when they have leaders like like Sean Hughes working there. Yeah, and, and you have to give them credit because you know one of the firms that's that's working on the project with the Commonwealth is uh, the team over at Vericode and Neil Bird, who runs public sector there, said people never do this. <laughs> people never go back and figure out what should the contract language look like. They don't get the attorneys and uh, the general counsels wrangling about it until you know later. And so I think that, you know, an organization like that has been around forever. 
you know, saying that that team is doing something special in the ASCO and the Application Security Center of Excellence is pretty interesting. Yeah, hang on. <laughs> like, just pause on that one for a second. Is it again? So Veracode's been around for like a long time. I don't know exactly how many years, but they are basically kind of like the de facto standard for like static and dynamic code scanning. And to say you have an organization like this saying, you know, what Sean Hughes and the folks at State of Master joining is is different. It's progressive and awesome actually should should really say a lot right on so speaking about saying a lot the next section uh, which is really the last one we'll dig into is with one of my favorite content developers one of my favorite experts in the field is oh that's right you anyway the, the next section we talk about the, the the idea of a new style of threat intelligence use threat intelligence sharing the way in which state and local organizations can really federate a lot of their information gathering and, and driving smartness from it and i think it's one of the areas where and it's a back and forth where there is sort of a new insight given about the way things can be and this is probably perhaps the most forward-looking of the recommendations because this may start in 2023 but it's going to go on forever right this idea of improving the way that people take advantage of threat intelligence so since you're specifically the expert engaged, what do you think was the most important thing that we saw as we come through 22 into 23 uh, around people's appetite for a different style of information sharing and threat intelligence? It's, it's kind of an interesting thing, like looking back over the years and where we've been, I will be one of the first people to say what we've done up until this date, looking back on it, is Kind of, it's fairly broken right? in 2022. I don't mean that in like a terribly bad way, like what we did got us here, right? And that should really count for something. But now that we're AC after COVID, so we've been using BC and AC for before COVID and, and after COVID. But um, I think now that we're, we're after COVID, it's, um, I don't think our legacy mechanisms and techniques that we've used in cyber is sufficient. We need to be able to do more as an industry and we have the opportunity to do more. We just have to lean into it and do the hard work to get there. And a really easy spot for me, and perhaps easier said than done, is the idea of like when I look at um, vulnerability management and threat intel, like it's all reactive, right? In the sense where like it's telling us things, uh, making us aware of vulnerabilities that are already known. Right. And we've always been in a position of like looking backwards and things and like trying to measure risk on things that are known. And right. So like today we do like vulnerability scanning and um, we track vulnerabilities, we measure them. But then like the conversation of risk kind of comes up and saying like, well, you know, to, to patch this or do this configuration, you have to take it offline. And like, what's the risk? And it just goes like on and on and on. We can't keep going like this. The industry can't for my own sanity. Like we can't. <laughs> <laughs> we just, we got to be better. So like the idea behind like some of the things that like we talk about in the cyber priorities report is the idea of being proactive and forward leading when it comes to vulnerability management and threat intel. I'm saying like, imagine a world where you're doing your vulnerability analysis through the lens of proactive risk mitigation. Saying, yeah, like you've got a vulnerability, but like, so what? Like, does it actually matter? And like, yeah, you could say like, for the sake of like infrastructure hygiene or app hygiene, like you should always get those things fixed. But in the context of a business and how a business runs, it doesn't matter. 
right? Like, should, should you prioritize that over something else? And I would say in a lot of cases, the answer is no. But you need to get to the point where you can put someone on their front foot where they can measure some of these things. And they can say, okay, we know that this activity is happening. It's giving us more of like a early warning, like a early indication that, that an issue could be present, right? That like requires our immediate action because it articulates like clear and present danger for the organization that you're working with. Or that that you are. So I think like I think that's one aspect. And the other side of it too is saying like today, when you think about like monitoring, alerting, driving awareness to activities, like it all requires that a known thing exists and the known thing gets recorded to a disk, and then there's alerts that that get run on it. And like let's just take the example of threat intel, right? So threat intel comes in, there's sticks, taxi feed, whatever the case may be. It's an articulation of something that's known to exist out in the wild. And it's looking at data points that have been recorded within an environment, whether it's uh, security analytics or log aggregation, is saying it's correlating the threat intel against things that exist in your log file, which also implies and says that if the correlation happens and there actually is a match, is now telling you that saying something historically happened in your environment that matches this piece of threat intel. And by the way, like, that's not super helpful, right? This things already happen. And so the model that's proposed is saying like, let's flip this around and like imagine a world where you don't have to wait for something to be written for disk or like written to disk as this historical artifact, right? And then it doesn't need to historically happen to prove that it's actually a risk and rather like let's philosophically flip this around and being proactive and preventative in nature and saying, hey, like let's do this initial testing upfront in a way that's proactive and preventative and do it early in a way where like there's nothing that actually happens to prove that a vulnerability exists and rather like we use our security expertise today and our industry expertise to finally get people on the front foot of solving some of these issues and so anyway this like this kind of like a really long-winded way of saying like read the report because we uh we, we go into it in a lot of detail in the report I think it's a great note, right, to, to close it off on that sense uh, for being proactive, right? That proactivity is the change in what we're expecting and hoping for for our market going forward in 2023 and beyond. You know, the CPR as a whole is meant to be a forward-looking document, right? It's learning from folks we think are real leaders uh, in the sled space. It's using their best advice. We actually make some predictions and some projections as well at the end, but mainly it's about this is good work that's going on. And for the readers and for our listeners, maybe the folks you know who are reading it are like, wow, I hadn't thought of that, or that gives me the data that I need, or that gives me the support I need to go forward. So um, getting announced today, uh, it'll be out there in the marketplace. Please give it a read. All the pointers, of course, will be in the show notes. And uh, Justin, thanks for taking some time this morning to talk a little bit about it, both as a compatriot, co-developer, and subject matter expert. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thanks for, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for running through it. I just want to remind you, we are uh, your plus two in the penalty box. <laughs> right? Yeah. So for folks listening to this, uh, CPR report, separate priorities report is now out. If you like this episode, please like it, please share it. And if you like the CPR report, please, please share it with others that you think we would find it interesting. And um, questions, comments, if you have uh, content for the mailbag, questions you want us to answer here on the, on the show, or there's just other interesting topics that you want Jack and I to cover. 
whether that's uh, industry news, product topics, whatever the case may be, or you, there's interesting mergers and acquisitions that you want us to cover, we're happy to uh, delve into those things first. So uh, you can find us at info at newharborsecurity.com and we will catch you on the next episode.